episode 202 for November 2012. The Spider-Man Crawl Space Podcast is sponsored by MailOrderComics.com. They have discounts that start at 38, and they go up to 75% off the cover price of new comics and trades. A spider example is on Scarlet Spider Volume 2, the trade paperback called Lone Star. This one receives some great reviews on our site, and it collects Scarlet Spider number 7 to 9, and number 12 to 15. Now, the cover price is 20 bucks. Mail Order has it for just $12.39. So check them out at MailOrderComics.com. Welcome back, gang. We start this show with a little discussion of Disney slash Marvel buying Lucas slash Star Wars. Here we go. This is fringe Spider-Man talk, but Bertoni is such a Star Wars fan. I thought I'd cater a question to him because this is pr- this involves Spider-Man minutely. Uh, this film was bought by Disney. Disney owns Marvel. Marvel owns Spider-Man. It's like six degrees of Spider-Man. Uh, and people are already asking if they'll cross over. Spider-Man team up with Luke Skywalker and use the Force or use the web. Um, four point what was it? Four point five billion. Four point two billion. Which, see, Brad, I told you that we should have sent our spent our four point two billion on something else. We could have owned Star Wars. I can't take credit for it, but uh, Mark Evinier, I think is how you say his name. He's a, he's a, he's a uh, television producer and etc. And I read his blog daily, and I like his thought on it. He said Disney came to Lucas with four billion, and Lucas said no. So that's how I got point two billion. <laughs> okay. Can you imagine turning down a four point four point zero offer? He doesn't need the money. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right, this all starts like in the seventies when Star Wars was envisioned as like a continuous flow of movies. I think it was Carrie Fisher who compared it during the time of Empire Strikes Back to the Bond movies. Like it wasn't originally going to be like a trilogy or a six movie thing. That's all changed. And then he said it was going to be 12 movies. Then he said, actually, it's going to be nine. And it, it's changed so much. And then after he did Return of the Jedi, he's like, you know what? I might never do one again, except for the prequels. And then he did the prequels. And around 1997, he said, you know what? There was always going to be six movies. What about all those other interviews where I said that there was going to be 12 or nine? Um, those interviews never happened. And ever since 1997... Every single interview that he's had, someone has said, so, what about a sequel trilogy? He said, no, never. And even a few months ago, he was like, when he announced his retirement, he said, no, never, absolutely not going to happen. And that's what kills me, because when I first heard this news, I couldn't believe it. And that's my own fault for like, well, he always changes his mind about everything and retcons stuff that he says in interviews. So I suppose I should have seen this coming. But gosh darn it, since he was saying no sequels ever since 1997, I actually believed him. Well, don't you think Star Wars is now bigger than Lucas? It's been bigger than Lucas for a long time. Culturally, it's – there's very few things that touch it culturally. And the fact that there's going to be new movies, that is – to me, that's like one of the biggest entertainment news stories of the decade. Yeah. It's I've been wanting a sequel to Return of the Jedi since '83. Now, here's something that someone real that someone uh, put online, and I can't take credit for this, but because of the distribution stuff, the new movie is not going to begin with the 20th Century Fox fanfare. You are not going to hear that before a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. You might get a gal- you might get the title card. You, you'll, you'll get the card. title card, but it's not going to be right before 
the John Williams uh, school. I'd say we open with the Star Destroyer blowing up uh, the Magic Kingdom <laughs> in <It's>, the opening. <laughs> but it's knowing that, like, I can't describe, and because I'm such a big Star Wars fan, and it's like, it, this is a very, very emotional thing for me, seeing... The, a new movie in theaters with that title a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, and then the title crawl in theaters, new movie. That like that moment, that's going to be a very, very big deal. That it's almost hard to describe. This news put me in shock. For, like, well, you had you had that feeling with the trilogy, didn't the first three, didn't you? Well, I, I wasn't born until nineteen eighty. No, I'm talking about the first. Yes, yeah, yeah, I had that feeling, and it was great. And now it's it's getting in again, and it's it. Like, after it does the title crawl and it says episode something, when it's something that I haven't seen on video 300 times before, when it says the name of a new movie, that's... Let's, let's bring it to Marvel talk. Um, Disney, I think, has done okay by Marvel. They just had a billion-dollar movie come out called The Avengers. So Disney's been pretty hands-off, I think. Yeah, and all these people saying that Josh Whedon's going to be the new director... Okay, look at what year Avengers 2 is coming out, 2015. You really think he's going to direct two movies coming out in the same summer that are both this much big budgets? Mm-hmm. Plus he's consulting on all the other Marvel movies, which are considerable. Yeah. So so Disney has a good track record of hands-off of Marvel. Yeah, the biggest – I just put a big article about it on the front page. It, did. The, it, was, it was very good. The biggest thing that you're going to see is changes in the licensing – like, like you know, Marvel might be doing Star Wars comics again. Uh, Cartoon Network can kiss all their Star Wars stuff goodbye because that's a Time Warner company. But for the most part, in terms of, like, they're going to change our characters, they're going to do this. And oddly enough, um, I was um, at work with one of the kids when I found this out, and he was actually not happy about this because he thought – because, like, to bigger kids, Disney is, like, you know, passe. It's for babies. He was afraid that they were going to, like, you know, neuter the Star Wars characters, although that's not the word that he used. And it's, but, <laughs> he you know, deep ball. <laughs> yeah, well, he said, he said castrate, of course. Um, but <laughs> what, what, you, you look at what they've, what they've done with Marvel the past few years, and they've pretty much, you know, the Punisher is still shooting people. It's, it, Lucasfilm, it, oh, Disney is just going to collect their money from the merchandising yeah. and make sure everything's under one roof and pretty much let Lucasfilm operate the way that they're going to operate. We're not going to... Really I really don't think it looks good for Dark Horse. I was saying the same thing. Half their slate is Star Wars comics. Oh, this yeah. this is going to gut Dark Horse. Now, they have stuff like Buffy and everything else and other properties, but... And it's Actually, sad my worry is... Sorry. Oh, and it's sad because Marvel... They had the license, and they pretty much in the mid-'80s said, you know what, um, who cares about Star Wars anymore? They had Dark Empire, and they didn't publish it. They didn't do anything with it. And then Dark Horse said, hey, um, we want the license. And Marvel's like, yeah, we don't care anymore. And Dark Horse has done so many good things with it. They've, I'd say that a big part of what the Star Wars Expanded Universe is today comes from Dark Horse. Yeah. And now, you know, I, I love Marvel, and I would love to have Marvel and Star Wars under the same roof again, but I don't think it's fair to Dark Horse. I think Dark I don't Horse think might Star have a major problem in that, yeah. you know, half they're publishing, what, five Star Wars comics per month? And right now, their only other major thing is Buffy, and you've got a Buffy comic and an Angel and Faith comic, and maybe a miniseries. So my worry is that to try to make up for Star Wars, they're going to end up publishing, like, a bunch more Buffy Universe comics and diluting the entire franchise. 
they don't put out aliens or predator books anymore either, do they? The other thing they see them do is uh, Hellboy. Mm, yeah, they own Hellboy. They um they were doing the mask and stuff like that. Um, it would be like if if Brad, okay, let's say Brad started the new podcast that wasn't Crawl Space, and it was yeah. big for a while, but then he got bored with it and people stopped listening to it. And I said, hey, Brad, I want to take over your podcast. And he's like, okay, whatever, who cares? And I took over his podcast, and I did it for 10 years. And it became, like, one of the biggest podcasts ever. And all of a sudden, Brad said, all right, I'm going to have my show back now. See you later. <laughs> it, That's true. It's that like type Kyle of... Jordan and Barry Allen. Right. And, and there's other forces at work here. But at the same time, like, I really wonder what... A uh, Star Wars series would be like under Marvel, which uh, C.J. Rogers asked in the message board question. I'll get more into there. The the thing is, Star Wars comics under Dark Horse don't sell very well. It's well for Dark Horse though. Like I remember at the time, not for Marvel comics though. Right. Well, a bestseller for Dark Horse is like a bad seller for Marvel. I remember at the time, mm-hmm. Legacy, which was their ongoing series about like 120 years into the future after Return of the Jedi. They um. They were saying that that was their best-selling comic of their entire line, and I checked the numbers for that, and it was like thirty thousand. And I was like, "Wow, that's well, like not only not only is the Marvel banner going to help a, a Marvel Star Wars comic sell better, but Marvel's going to put Fraction or Dan Abnett and Andy Landing on it, and those names going to help sell it a lot." But do those people get Star Wars the way that Dark Horse does, or are they going to try and make it into something else? And what's is, the big what's the biggest writer at Dark Horse that does Star Wars comics? And Ostrander? Yeah, Ostrander. Um, I would probably say that. I'd have to really think. One thing that I have to bring up, though, because people still aren't getting this, and <laughs> every day on Facebook somebody mentions this, every single day I see a new article about this. Okay, people, Episode 7 is not going to be the Timothy Zahn Thrawn books. Stop asking. That is not what Lucasfilm is going to do. They've already said that like a day after this was announced. It would be impractical to do the Thrawn movies anyway. I love the Thrawn books. They're some of my favorite Star Wars Expanding Universe stuff ever, but those aren't going to be made into movies. Stop asking. Cut to three years later the, when they're made into movies. There's talk that uh, Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher will come back because they had a meeting. Like, yeah, years. about that. They need, Remember the they need, story? That, they need to get in shape. <laughs> yeah, about that. Remember that story I told you about that Germany announcement that they made at that convention a few months ago? Right. There's rumors that they were supposed to announce episode seven then, but the deal fell through. So they had to like the program for a closing ceremony said, Stay tuned for our major announcement and then they had to make Germany the major announcement. That would have made more sense to do. And it says that he told them both in August of twenty twelve. Well in August twenty twelve, all three of them were at the convention together. So this was being spoken about even then. That, and they could have announced it in a room full of thousands of fans where we all would have absolutely had heart attacks. And, and Don will tell you, I was in a state of shock the next day. I couldn't think about anything else. I was so wired. I told you about uh, Star Wars 7, and you were like, what? Yeah, he, he told me. He uh, I, I heard about the Disney thing through like different Facebook snippets while I was at work, but I didn't know about Episode 7 until he texted me. And I, and I thought that he got it wrong because they've been saying no Episode 7. Well, and, and I'll, go ahead, Zach. I jump in on this. What's gonna be, get up close to your mic, though. Yeah, how about now? All right, uh, swallow it. <laughs> 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 oh, 
<laughs> Sorry. <laughs> really? Uh, oh, right. I know it. I know Whoever it. was uh, asked their favorite Brad quote in the message board questions just got it. That was the <laughs> Exact. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. uh, don't swallow it. I was going for quotes, by the way, and almost every single great Brad quote was an insult towards me. I don't know what that says about me on the show, but anyway, the uh, – the point I was going to make is, is it's going to be really crazy to walk into a Disney store, see Marvel on one side, Star Wars on the other, and how much they're going to freaking merchandise this stuff. Um, for the sake of um, the Dark Horse thing, I'm who's to say that they wouldn't bring in those writers that were already doing I, I, I mean, it wouldn't stop Marvel from doing it. I don't, I don't know what why they would. I, they wouldn't be the same continuity, but, uh, you know... Why not? No, they, they might do the same continuity, but that's going to depend on some new movie stuff. Right. Well, yeah, they're probably going to. I think it'd be dumb to start fresh. I don't know. It would piss all the fans off, I think. Yeah. yeah. Any other thoughts on Star Wars? Game? I have a quick question, actually. Okay. Do we know what the nature of like the license between Dark Horse and Lucasfilm is? Because it sounds like we're acting like we're assuming this is something that could cancel, like. Disney could cancel any time they want to, but are we sure they don't have a contract that could survive um, Marvel's or Lucasfilm's acquisition by Disney? Yeah, it all depends, because I used the example in the article that uh, Islands of Adventure's Marvel Comics uh, rides, people thought that those were going to be gone the second that Disney bought Marvel, but it's three years later, and they're still there now, and that's because they have good contracts, whereas... Cartoon Network, supposedly they're only contracted to have Clone Wars through like 2013. It's like a year-by-year thing, so we'll be seeing that change sooner. It's, I mean, for all we know, Dark Horse could have the license like through 2018 or something like that, which would be great because then they would get to do the adaptations of the new movie. Uh, the terms haven't been released, but Mike Richardson, who's the publisher at Dark Horse, or president rather, he made a statement basically saying that it was very, very cryptic, but he said this changes the landscape. And uh, <laughs> it basically yeah. was a oh, shit type message. Yeah, exactly what it was. All right, gang, I think it's time to review a comic. We only have one this month. What comic is that? That would be Amazing Superior Streaking Spider-Man. <laughs> My favorite comic! <laughs> I don't think we've ever had just one comic to review on a podcast, yeah, have we? One more day, Brad. Well, oh, it just happened day, that uh, you got your first issue from this month early, so we reviewed it on last month's podcast with those two. That explains it. All right, then. What issue is this again? This is Amazing 696, which is, uh, this is a first. We've recorded 200 episodes, and I have not read the issue. So I can't give any input. Cause right, I Douglas, we're off of the show. Hey, but Brad. you know what? I'm, give, I'm giving it a C. I'm just kidding. <laughs> hey, Brad, it doesn't matter because it was a fluff issue. It was a fluff issue, all right. Zach is going to tackle this one. Uh, what happened in it? What do you think, sir? All right, so we're going to uh, swallow it. There you go. I can hear you now. Okay. There you go. Amazing Spider-Man 697 is written by Dan Slott and Christos Gage. Art by Giuseppe. Giuseppe. Cameron Cameron Coley. Well, the Giuseppe I actually looked up. Uh, (laughs) All right. It opens with uh, Bangable Man Webbs uh, seizing up and being sent to the hospital, mentioning a flash of gold. 
We cut back to Shadowland, where the for the first time since 2007, we see Kingpin interact with Peter Parker. Last issue's cl- cl- cliffhanger was that we might see that Peter Parker's exposed to Spider-Man, and he's still suffering from the hyperactive spider sense jammer. But he's Spidey's best friend! <laughs> Sorry. We cut to Rowdy Roddy over at Burek's uh, apartment, and he, su- and he suits up with a hobgoblin. Modell gets in an email with Peter Helbert being held hostage. He goes to Peter Parker's black box, which is the place where he stores his spider gear. He gets the suitcase and the king the kingpin wants, and he's off to see if he can free Peter Parker. We cut to Columbia University Medical Center, where it's revealed that Julia Carpenter has filed her fingerprints off, and there was no way to identify her. Except for DNA samples, jackasses. But okay. And get all records and toe prints <laughs> and all that. Uh, yeah, I knew somebody else was going to jump in with more of that. <laughs> but that's beside the point. We see that her vision came true, an Octobot that happens to be gold comes out of the ocean. Which harkens back to the Avenging Spider-Man epilogue issue that uh, avenges the Earth that no one read. Modell r- arrives when we finally find what the object in the suitcase was. The Goblin Key! Sorry, I wrote that in all caps because I think it had to be like that. Can you still hear me? Yes. There you are. Okay. Keep going. All right. Real, li- real loud. I, Shout it. I will project my voice. Project it, baby. <laughs> An object that we have never heard before, but it's kind of like the Osborne Journal that magically, magically changed pages back when Norman Osborne was crazy in uh, the end towards the reboot. Roderick finally arrives at the scene, and Yurik begins his battle in earnest. Modell brings the web shooters for Peter to use, and he takes his one shot because he's still woozy from the Spider-Sense jammers. He snags Kingsley's glider, causing them to, you know, happen to fall on the central transmitter of the Spider-Sense jammers. Uh, Tiberius Stone says, No! Not really, but kind of. Uh, Peter, being free of the jammers, uh, screwing with the spider sense, is able to snag the key, and, and the kingpin instructs the fighting goblins to kill the geeks. Next issue. Get that nerd! That's actually what it says. Get that nerd. <laughs> Alright, my thoughts are that simply, this issue is very, very basic. Uh, the art was okay. It wasn't... It didn't really grab me. Very kind of sketchy and gritty, and it kind of, to me, doesn't fit the tone of the story. Maybe it's the colors. Uh, it advances the overall basic plot of the issue, and it teases incessantly about whether or not Max Modell is either the biggest idiot in the world or has one of the biggest brains in the Marvel Universe. Yep. Um, so, I, I, again, I didn't enjoy the artwork all that much, but overall there's not a lot for me to say about it other than that. This, kind of, this issue is kind of bare-bones and basic. Uh, the cover is my biggest pro of this issue. I actually enjoyed the cover with uh, the kind of bleeding uh, lines of the Spider-Man mask uh, and the uh, unnatural-looking goblins like, kept going at it with one with a broadsword that happens to be flaming because who doesn't like a flaming, flaming broadsword? So uh, this issue is going to get a solid C-plus for me. Okay. Let's go around the horn for pros. Don, is there a pro that you found? Uh... He's searching. Uh, the original He's looking in the long the box. The original Hobgoblin put on his costume. There you go. Uh, I mean, like, uh, there was a uh, there, there's a fight, but I don't, I don't think we saw much of it. But he's here. Chris, is there a pro? Yeah, I, I overall liked this issue, um, but I think I'll single out that I liked the use of the character Max Modell in this issue because mm-hmm. um, him having to come thinking that it was him who had to save Peter. 
and he was uh, bluffing to the kingpin was a a good way to get him involved in the story and b a good way to increase the suspense of the story because now peter has a civilian to protect and c it was actually a good way to show like the positive qualities of this character because we've criticized in the past that you know the dan slot's narration is telling us that he's a great person on par with george stacy and characters like that but here we actually see him and not only is he thinking that he's rescuing peter but he's act like peter comments that he's sweating like he's sweating bullets he's nervous so he's acting heroic despite the fact that he's afraid and that sort of action makes him seem more courageous and admirable to me than maybe if a hardened person who didn't wince at danger did the same thing i really hope that he knows who spider-man is otherwise he is really stupid like we've reached the point where he has to know or he is too stupid to live because um you know you know he's saying like you know peter if i didn't see you with spider-man during spider island i would have thought that you were so like you know the only thing keeping him from concluding that spider-man is peter parker is this storyline where everybody had spider powers and it could have been anybody in that costume so that should that event shouldn't prove a thing to him he should just know now that this is peter so like i know dan slot he i don't know him personally but i know his writing and this is going to be something that's probably dragged out until we forget and stop caring but um you know we're i, I think we're going to have to deal with a does max know or not for a while and i hope we don't i hope i'm proven wrong but you know, but overall, I like the use of that character in that this issue. Kev, a pro, uh, multiple. Yeah, I've nice. First, I think this. You know, the term "instant classic" has been used by the editors sometimes uh, erroneously. Um, but I think this cover is an instant classic. This is an awesome freaking Spider-Man cover. I absolutely love this. Uh, it's a Steve McNiven cover. If people haven't seen it, I mean, you can look it up. But it's like sideways. Uh, eyes of Spider-Man's mask with sort of blood dripping down and the two hobgoblins are coming out of the eyes ready to fight and it also shows off just how much cooler the original hobgoblin looks than the Zelda sword hobgoblin. Um, (laughs) Zelda sword, I like it. I love that cover, it's like automatically one of my favorites. Uh, But also, I thought it was a great issue. We had Kingpin, Hobgoblin, Real Stakes, just good comics. We finally got the promise of the two hobgoblins fighting. I was into this. Okay. Uh, JR, what's your pro? Well, I've got a few pros because I, uh, I too, uh, pretty well like the issue. I mean, uh, I think my favorite thing was just, you know, I always love a good supervillain smackdown, and these two had distinctive voices. You know, I mean, Kingsley is very articulate and, and uh, thoughtful and measures his words, and, uh, you know, Phil talks like a punk. And uh, I like Kingsley's lines about goblins not being able to resist blondes and... Uh, and uh, the fact that Phil was using uh, using some of the goblin equipment to peep on Nora, you know, I mean, that's what a, that's what a young supervillain would do, you know. So I uh, I I kind of I, I kind of like that, and uh, you know, yeah. I like the fact that the they're, um, the the MacGuffin in this is uh, the key, the quote unquote key to all of Norman Osborn's secrets, and uh, you know, and it's a good cliffhanger too, you know. I mean, the, the Max and Peter are running, and here come both goblins. Um, mm-hmm. I, just, I, you know, I, you know, there are a few issues, uh, weaknesses here and there, but you know, overall, I enjoyed it and give it a B. Uh, uh, who haven't we had? We haven't had Bertoni. Bertoni, what's your pro on this one? I, I liked it. It was a fun issue. The whole hostage situation and trying the. Oh, I'm hearing echoes. 
You're fine. Okay. Um, I liked it, the whole hostage situation, and um, I like the part where Maximal does, like, if you open this, you'll die, and Kingman's like, I know. And he's like, random hand servant. He's like, it is my honor, my master, to die for you. And just the whole thing of Peter, you know, like, can't give away his identity, but he's tied up, and now, like um, Chris said, he's got to figure Max into this whole thing. Um, I like that stuff, and like uh, Kevin said, that is probably one of the best covers that we've seen for the past 50 issues, if not more. Yeah. Let's go around the horn. Uh, uh, cons. Anybody else got a con? I think I, I should speak up. Oh, go oh, ahead. I'll, I just have a pretty minor con, because I know that the counter to this is... Um, but I, and I was listening to old podcasts, and when you were uh, talking about the first uh, issue with Phil as the Hobgoblin, and he apparently killed Kingsley, um, you were saying, you know, it'll be great if the the real Hobgoblin comes back, and it wasn't really him who died, and he just kicks uh, Phil's ass, and then I think, uh, yeah. But um, Jr. I believe was the person who said, well, it should be the hero of the story who defeats him ultimately. And so that's right. And I acknowledge that right. And this is just a fanboy talking, but I really wanted Kingsley to just come back and freaking murder Phil. And the, 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 the fight that we got showed them as being pretty fairly evenly matched. And, you know, that's the way you got to do it. Cause Spider-Man's the one who is ultimately going to have to beat both of them. But I just really wanted freaking Kingsley to just smash him. Yeah. Con, anybody else? I feel like I might be the conversion of the episode because I didn't... I mean, I didn't think this issue was horrible. I thought it was serviceable. I didn't think that, like, uh, it was, you know, like, the worst thing ever. But I felt that, like, a lot of stuff didn't really evoke any passion or interest or... I wasn't really engaged, I suppose. I mean, it's interesting that Peter's uh, kidnapped by the king, who apparently is meeting him for the first time. I don't know about that, but... uh, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel that, like... Like, the Hobgoblin fight between Phil and Kingsley, I thought we were kind of robbed because they were kind of in these, like, really vertical, hard-to-really-see-what's-going-on panels. Like 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 uh, Chris said, we're kind of just shown that, like, they're evenly matched, but we're not really shown the extent of their power. I mean, this is the first time we've seen Kingsley as a Hobgoblin in, in a dec- over a decade, and, like, it's almost like, you know, not that big of a deal. And I was kind of hoping for more things. I thought that the Goblin Key thing was a little bit of a weird MacGuffin. Would Norman Osborn really make a key that, with a goblin face on it? I mean, I know it's crazy, but that kind of just seems weird and cartoonish. Um, I'm not again. This isn't like you know the worst story I've ever read, but I just thought that it was a little. It, it, it didn't do. It didn't do much for me. Okay. Any other cons before we wrap around? I've got one. Yeah. Go around for great. Yeah, one I'm gonna. Okay. I'm gonna. Oh, uh, Kevin, you want to go first? Yeah, uh, sure. Okay. Uh, it's, it's brief. Just the uh, and it's kind of uh, contrary to what Jr. was saying about. Uh, the distinctive voice of the goblins. They did have distinctive voices, but I felt like the whole time I was reading it that Roderick Kingsley's voice was a bit off. He didn't sound quite... He didn't sound quite... The biggest line that stood out to me was when he first comes uh, to the meeting of the Kingpin and everything, he says, You're right, Chubbs. Too bad it belongs to me. Roderick Kingsley called the Kingpin Chubbs. Does that (laughs) sound right to anybody? Not really. So oh, that dude. that was my my little quibble, and you know there were things like you know instead of because he says cause and instead of want to he says wanna. It's just I see Roderick Kingsley speaking a lot more properly, and like Jr. said, considered than Chubbs. So that <laughs> that's my one gripe with the issue. Okay, Bertoni. Yeah, like um, 
Uh, I think it was Don who said the goblin key. And another thing too, this whole plot of the of anyone who's a hobgoblin trying to raid Norman Osborn's hideout to get gear. That was exhausted back in the 80s, because at one point in the 80s, um, uh, it was Roger Kingsley at the time, but we didn't know who it was. It could have very well been Ned Leeds or Richard Fisk. You know, he finally finds, like, the last of the Osborne journals from Harry, and he reads it, and he says, this is everything I have already known. I finally exhausted, like, Norman Osborne's hideout. I'm truly on my own now. I have all the gear. I have all the knowledge. It's... Oh, but never mind. There's all these other secret hideouts that we didn't know about. How many secret hideouts? Well, to counterpoint that, in between that time, Norman Osborn was the uh, head of Hammer and got all the S.H.I.E.L.D. files, so there is kind of a lot more that he knows now. Okay, that's a fair fair point. The other thing, too, is, and I said this last month, and I'm going to say it every month because it is the elephant in the room until they (laughs) resolve it. Oh, well, he didn't die. It was his twin brother. Um... Are you going to explain how it was his twin brother? They used to actually explain these things, but now they just take it for granted that the audience, oh, come on, Mysterio's the master of illusion. Of course he's alive. Or, oh, come on, this person disappeared in an explosion. Of course they're alive. It's And last night, when I was reviewing questions and fact-checking for Spider Jeopardy, I reread 649, and I haven't read that scene in years where um, the hobgoblin who supposedly Daniel Kingsley's murdered by Phil, reading the dialogue that comes out of... Daniel Kingsley's mouth, there is no way that Dan Slott intended that to be Daniel Kingsley. And if Dan Slott did, then he has never read a Daniel Kingsley comic in his life. Read two or three Daniel Kingsley appearances, then read (laughs) that comic. There's about like four reasons, including before he knows that Phil's in the room, when he's talking to himself in a way that like Daniel Kingsley would not talk to himself. You know, like, super strength. For one thing, it's just, they need to explain this. And this issue would have been a perfect time for him to say, ah, that was my brother you killed. I put him in the Winkler brainwashing machine and gave him super strength. But no, no, it's just, you know, twin brother. That's all the explanation that we need. Go on with the story. One line. That's all we would have needed. And every issue that they don't say that one line, it's an elephant in the room. And I'm really beginning to think that Dan Slott's just going to ride that twin brother thing and do nothing further with it. Here's another question I've been wondering. What happened to the goblin cult? They died uh, in the 90s. Did you read the Osborne miniseries? I did. Is it not st- still going on? What's going on with that? I don't know. <laughs> JR? <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm sure it'll be revived. I mean, remember, there was a uh, goblin cult um, back in the uh, Revenge of the Green Goblin miniseries. Remember when he broke, when they, the ones that broke off from Scryer? And uh, yeah. they kind of disappeared for a while. And uh, now we have a new one. And since uh, Norman's in a coma, you know, there, you know, there's no point in writing about him anymore. So, you know, like any other good, you know, plot device, they'll probably show up again when needed. I, they I, they I, meet on Thursdays in their tidy whities and they turn red. What is with yeah. you yeah. meeting on Thursdays, Brad? Okay, we'll meet on Wednesdays. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was going to jump in with the gold goblin cult thing. I think Slot actually acknowledged that he had more stuff to do with the goblin cult, but he ultimately had to drop it because of things that were happening elsewhere. Oh, like turning Gred and Tidy Whitey's. <laughs> exactly. Uh, let's go around the horn for grades on this, gang. Uh, let's see. JR, what's your grade on the book? I gave it a B. Kevin. I give it an A for absolutely one of Slot's best issues. It was co-written by Christos Gage, so you should probably qualify that. (laughs) Hell yeah. (laughs) One of Dan Slot's best issues. (laughs) 
for Tony. I also gave it a B. This was this was a fun issue, you know, and like good good suspenseful comics. Chris, I'll give it a B minus. Zach, I gave it a C plus, but apparently I'm the Don. I'm the one that's wrong. Cordero. Don, C minus. I'm the one that's right now. <laughs> I haven't read it. Um, Brag isn't enough. I give it enough, yes. And people say we're negative on this show. That was a lot of... <laughs> Only the reviewer. <laughs> Only the review part. I think we pretty much covered every conceivable grade from A to C-. minus. I think we did. I think we did. All right, now it's time for the special segments. I enjoy this part. It's always fun. Uh, let's start with uh, this month in Spider History. We're going back to November of 1986. Amazing Spider-Man number 282 came out, and JR is going to tackle this one. And this was the Marvel 25th anniversary covers, right? Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, of course, you know, Marvel has a way of, uh, depending upon the situation of, you know, uh, changing when they consider their anniversary to be, uh, whether it's 1939 or 1961. Uh, but uh, in this case here, it's uh, based on 1961, the uh, publication of uh, the first issue of the Fantastic Four. Uh, and so, yeah, that's one reason I kind of chose this month is because, you know, it's the 50th anniversary of Spider-Man, and the 25th anniversary of Marvel is not entirely congruent, but, but close enough for government work. Um, <laughs> so there you are. And the fur, the fury of X Factor and Tom DeFalco wrote it, and artist Rick Leonardi, who also penciled 2099. Is it a tie-in? I don't know. Anyway, what what happened in this one, Jr. X Factor was just formed, I think. Yeah. Well, this this is this issue is the convergence of two really dumb ideas that nobody <laughs> that nobody seems to acknowledge are just really dumb ideas. Um, the first one, and, and also one reason I, I picked this one is because it's got the Hobgoblin in it and, and Flash. Uh, there, well, there's a lot of references to Flash, and he's a more prominent character in the Marvel U right now. But, yeah, you, you've got to – you remember here the setup for this story is, you know, Flash, Kingsley framed Flash to be the Hobgoblin. You know, he dressed Flash in his Hobgoblin costume and put Hobgoblin stuff in Flash's apartment, and everybody says, oh, yeah, Flash is the Hobgoblin, even though Flash has no scientific acumen, even though the Hobgoblin, anybody who's heard the Hobgoblin talk knows that uh, he's a little bit more educated and speaks with a little bit more professionalism and flair than Flash Thompson, and anybody who probably tracked Flash's or the Hobgoblin's movement over time could probably you know, come up in five minutes that, uh, that they're not the same person. But, you know, why, you know, why do that, you know, when you could just, you know, when you could just prolong this, who is the Hobgoblin misery, as, as Marvel was doing at this time. And, and, and I like Tom DeFalco. I mean, I, I really do. Uh, but, you know, sometimes there's a clinker, and, uh, and this is, that was a kind of a clinker. Okay, so basically, you know, uh, Flash has escaped from prison because in the previous issue, Jack-O-Lantern, uh, you know, who becomes Hobgoblin, of course, later, uh, is such a loser, even when he's jack-o'-lantern, he's wondering why nobody will hire him. And so he thinks that busting out of, you know, flash out of prison is going to impress everybody and they're going to want to hire him. So, you know, whether he's got a pumpkin on his head or whether he's, you know, he's a loser. Uh, and that's why nobody will hire him. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's, there's, uh, that's pretty simple. So, but anyway, so Flash has been busted out of jail and uh, and it's all over the news. And then, you know, we see that Mary Jane actually it has just, you know, enjoyed a, a long night out with uh, Alfredo, who, as we find out later, is the Roses slash um, Richard Fisk best friend. And, 
Yes, yes, Alfredo. If you read, uh, I think it was Web of Spider-Man number 30, uh, you'll find out that, uh, let's see, the the retcon of a retcon before the next retcon, um, (laughs) when when Ned Leeds was the Hobgoblin, that that Ned and Alfredo and uh, Fisk would get together and do all their plotting. And Alfredo, I think, was the gadget guy. I think Alfredo did a lot of surveillance and, and other things. Uh, but anyway, yeah, that's Richard Fisk's best buddy. And, you know, here Mary Jane is teasing him, you know, she goes back to his apartment, and as he's probably becoming very, um, you know, shall I say, uh, getting ready to take his britches off, you know, she decides she hears the news that Flash is broken out, and she's worried about Peter. Um, obviously not Alfredo's. But uh, so as he, um, you know, as she, as basically she ditches him, uh, she goes and checks on Peter Parker, and of course Peter is completely passed out, you know, because he's uh, fighting the, the. In the previous issue, he fought the Sinister Syndicate, uh, and uh, and got his bell rung by the Rhino. So, um, what did X Factor do? What's that? What did X Factor do in this? Well, that's, that's well, in other words, in other words, you're saying hurry this up along, Jr. Uh, and no, get no, to the I'm core just, of the story. The, the story <laughs> no, is about X Factor. Well, well, yeah. Because then, okay, well, then we go to, we switch to the Daily Bugle, and as Jonah is ranting and raving, as he usually does, uh, we hear on the radio, you know, an ad for X-Factor saying, you know, are you worried about the mutant menace? You know, and here's the other dumb idea, you know, which, as I've always said, the whole mutant menace thing makes absolutely no sense I, in the context yeah. of the Marvel Universe. But so here, what we have here, is we have the original X-Men, the original five X-Men, dressing up in blue jumpsuits, claiming to be X-Factor, who pretend to be bounty hunters hunting mutants, but they're really trying to find mutants so they can help them out. Uh, and then, it, of course, that gets complicated even further later on. Uh, Jonah wants to hire them to go after Spider-Man. At first they think, well, wait a minute, Spider-Man's not a mutant. Uh, but then they say, well, it would be good publicity, so let's go after Spider-Man. Um, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Anyway... Uh, who, who knows Spider-Man's not a mutant? That's a good question. How, do, how does Jonah know that? Well, how do they know that? well yeah. first, first of all, Jonah doesn't care one way or the yeah. other. Um, and second and of all, I think... X-Factor know? Well, I, <laughs> I, I have to... I, have, I, I don't know entirely, but I think Spider-Man's probably been around in the X-Men enough that he's probably told him he's not a mutant. Um, and I think they actually recruited him once many, many years ago, uh, wow. and... I haven't read that issue or seen it in a long time, but I think like an X-Men 25 or something, they tried to recruit him, and he, I think he told him he wasn't a mutant. So I think I think, I think you can pretty well count on the fact that he said that he's not. Um, but, you know, of course, how does the general public know the difference? But, yeah, we get, we're getting everybody worried about the mutant menace. Um, anyway, so they decide to take the job. They go after Spider-Man, and Spider-Man's, you know, already not feeling very well, and, and, uh, you know, so he's wondering, so here's where it really starts to get stupid. Uh, what X-Factor does is they don't want anybody to, I guess, guess, figure out what they're really doing. So they strip off their blue jammies as X-Factor and they put on their original X-Men clothes. And then Spider-Man says, hey, I know you, you're former X-Men who are now the exterminators who are always <laughs> fighting that anti-mutant group X-Factor. And it's like, <laughs> And at that point, I am just extremely, excruciatingly exasperated uh, about all the X stuff. You know, it's like, oh, can this get any more absurd? 
And then, you know, and then as, you know, as he continues to fight him, you know, he's saying, is what X Factor says true, that mutants are a threat to all humanity? I mean, Spider-Man is saying this. Spider-Man, who has fought beside the, X, beside the X-Men many, many times, you know, uh, and who also knows what it's like to be, to be loathed simply because of who you are or because you're different, you know, and then he's asking this incredibly stupid question that Spider-Man would not ask. Um, <laughs> and then the whole, and, and then the whole thing is solved when when Spider Man thinks that he that he's knocked Marvel Girl or Jean Grey or or Phoenix or you know whatever name she's going you know uh, name she's going by Ravishing Redhead, uh, he knocks her off a, a building doesn't realize that she could have saved herself but he passes out trying to web her and they say well gee you know we were you know we're going to look like a bunch of you know dumbasses if we take Spider Man in after he's tried to be so helpful. <laughs> <laughs> you know, never, never saying to themselves, boy, this was a really stupid idea in the first place to go after Spider-Man. Uh, you know, it's like, so they go back to Jonah and says, oh, guess what? We figured out Spider-Man is not a mutant, so here's your money back. Uh, <laughs> and and I, the, I it, read this since 86. It sounds dumb with adult eyes. <laughs> it, yeah, it, it, it really is. It, I mean, it really is. And, uh, and basically, you know, nothing, there's a few other things going on, but nothing else really matters. This this was just dumb. You know, like I said, you know, the convergence of two extremely dumb ideas. And, you know, I don't know what happened to X-Factor or the X-Terminators, you know, or, or I don't even know if Jean Grey is alive or dead, frankly, you know. And, and if anybody else can actually figure it out, you know, uh, good luck to you. That, that's on the X-Men Crawl Space podcast. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay. Two other books came out uh, this month, Spectacular. Peter Parker's Spectacular Spider-Man 120. Uh, this one's called A House is Not a Home, written by Bill Mantlow and art by Keith Giffen. What happened yes. here, JR? Well, actually, the next two issues we're going to talk about are ripped from the headlines type uh, issues. Mm-hmm. But this, this one here uh, is, is one of those awkward, very heavy-handed social justice issues. Basically, Spider-Man comes out in favor of rent controls in New York. Um, uh, <laughs> The uh, the primary plot is the, the primary plot is that there's a landlord who's wanting to gentrify his uh, slum tenement and convert it into uh, luxury condos, but the people who live there can't afford to live in luxury condos, so he's trying to force them out. Uh, some people won't leave, particularly this one crusty old feller, and so he hires the, the landlord hires a group of punks to try to intimidate these people, and. You know, and, and Spider, you know, Peter says, oh, my, you know, he goes to Robbie and says, Robbie, this is a story we need to tell. And then all of a sudden, you know, a, a Daily Bugle reporter that we hadn't seen before and we haven't seen since, uh, and her name is, uh, I think it's, I want to say it's Blaine Brown. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm driving, so I, I can't read my notes specifically, but I think it's, it's, you know, a cute girl by the name of Blaine Brown says, oh, yeah, Peter, that's a great story. I'll write it. You take pictures. So they go back to this tenement, and they interview the crusty old guy, and, of course, he tells them the story, you know, about how the landlord's trying to run them all out, and he hires the punks and, and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, so Spider-Man decides that he's going to hang out and try to protect the people who live there, but, you know, as, as uh, you know, destiny would uh, would happen, uh, he hears a cry for help. A mugging takes takes place. He he uh, rescues some lady from a mugger and gets back to the apartment and find out that the, uh, the the thugs have thrown the crusty old man out a window and he's dead. 
so, you know, so, and then the thugs, you know, not, not content with one victory at a time, they decide they're going to burn out the rest of the, uh, the tenants, and Spider-Man comes in, and he scares the living daylights out of the lead thug, who then confesses the whole plot, uh, and then, you know, and Spider-Man then gets to, you know, he uh, goes to a tenant meeting, and uh, or tenant meeting himself uh, with Laurie Grant, and he signs a petition to uh, to keep rent controls in New York City. Um, and along the way, we get deep, Spider-Man's deep thoughts, like it will take more than the determination of one old man or the power of a Spider-Man to stop the devastation of our neighborhoods. It'll take people willing. <laughs> wow. It'll take people willing to fight their fears and stand together. You know, and and thank you. You know, and and thank you, Martin Sheen. Uh, writing under Bill Mantlow uh, in this issue. Also, that came out this month is Web of Spider-Man number 20, written by David Michelini and art by Mark Silvestri from Image. And uh, this title is called Little Wars. Another social issue, JR? Very much so, but actually one that that turned out to be relatively uh, controversial in its day. Um, Really? Yes, at this point in time, uh, I, I, you know, you got to remember, Webb as Spider-Man had a pretty spotty history as far as creative yep. teams to quality. Uh, but David Michelini was, uh, who, of course, we know had like the longest run, I think, ever on Amazing, um, or close enough to it, um, you know, deci- decided that uh, Jonah Jameson was going to revive Now Magazine. And for all you really old Spider-Man fans, and, and for Tony, uh, you know that Now Magazine, <laughs> you, you know that Now Magazine was, was, uh, was all was owned by Jonah way back. I think it was even referenced in Bertone. He'll help me reference way back in Amazing Number Two or something. You know, because Peter was not only bringing his pictures to the Bugle, he was bringing them to the Bugle and Now Magazine. So you know, in a, in, a, in a bit of good old continuity whoredom, uh, Michelini has Jonah <laughs> decide to revive Now as a slick new magazine, and so he decides to send Peter and. His, uh, and again, to reference Bertoni, the, Bertoni considers this the 80s version of, uh, Nora Winters, uh, Joy Mercado. Uh, they go to England and, uh, to cover, uh, Mar- Margaret Thatcher's speech before Parliament. And at this point, <laughs> Thatcher was Prime Minister of, uh, yeah, England, uh, Prime Minister of Great Britain. And the story opens with the bomb of a, with a terrorist attack in Heathrow Airport. And, uh, you know, Peter is able to, yeah, Peter is able to, of course, he's able to, uh, get one, uh, help one of the terrorists be apprehended without giving the fact, the fact away that Spider-Man is there. And it's interesting here, you know, he knows that he couldn't slip his web shooters through customs, so he disassembles them and, you know, conce- and, uh, passes them off as part of his camera equipment. Which, you know, why didn't he think of that several years later when he was taking Aunt May to California and he tried to get his web shooters through the screener? And he didn't take them apart, and she had to try to cover by explaining they were gy- geriatric gynecological equipment. Um, you know, <laughs> I remember that. So you know, I mean, you know, JMS, uh, you know, should have he should have read he should have read some of it. But as we know, JMS probably didn't bother to read a lot of the old issues. Uh, but anyway, so so we get that, and basically what we find out was that these the terrorists, which were at this time were the IRA. Uh, we're trying to kill a prominent Scotland Yard inspector who was going to bring some crucial information to Thatcher for his, uh, his speech. And this is where, and then, um, as, um, 
they're, um, as Peter and Joy are taking their limo back to their hotel because uh, Joan is sparing no expense because he wants to make now uh, a prominent international mag, she decides to give him one of the most basic, distilled, um, uh, I'm trying to think, shallow explanations for the, uh, the conflict in Northern Ireland. Um, and I'll get to that in a little bit, but it's, it's not surprising to see that some people would be somewhat offended by that, as, as we'll explain later. But anyway, you know, later in the evening, uh, Peter and uh, Joy go out, and Joy uh, dresses for the occasion in a real slinky nightgown, and uh, so she and Peter gently flirt uh, at the dinner table, but then she has to go see a snitch uh, and get a story. <laughs> and, uh, you know, then, then Spider-Man goes out, uh, and uh, he visits the, uh, the terrorist in prison, uh, you know, scares him into giving the information of the location of the terrorist cell, and he overhears this insidious plot, but he doesn't know what it is because the cops come in and raid before um, before he finds out, before one of them actually gives it away. Uh, the next day, he and Joy are going to, to Thatcher's speech in Parliament, and then he remembers one of the terrorists say something about shaking the foundation uh, of the British government, and then he thinks, aha, that's it. Uh, he, did, he goes down into the sewers under Parliament, sees all the uh, these explosives wired and ready to go, and then, uh, you know, Spider-Man saves the day and stops his, um, you know, stops the terrorist and is still able to keep from Joy and everybody else uh, from realizing that Spider-Man is in town. Uh, the story ends with the Scotland Yard inspector who the IRA was trying to kill, uh, you know, saying, well, all's well, may, all's well that ends well may have been right for some people, but it wasn't because this six-year-old girl who was crit critically injured in the blast just died. You know, and so Peter and Joyce saying, you know what, there's a bigger story here. We're going to go to Ireland. And that's where the issue ends. Well, yeah. real life intervened. Um, apparently, Marvel, and I have to, I did some research, but I have to credit uh, CBR's comic book legends um, for um, uh, doing this concisely in one of their stories. Uh, the next issue, we get a ridiculous fill-in issue. Uh, it starts off By with Joy Stan's and Stan's brother. Yeah, Stan Larry, Larry, the yeah. same guy who gave us Stalker from the Stars four issues later. Um, <laughs> but anyway, Joy and Peter are on a boat and, to Ireland, and Peter sneezes. Joy says, boy, you better take care of that cold. And then Peter says, boy, you know, he's thinking to himself, yeah, I better, because the last time I had a cold and I was Spider-Man. And then that's what the story is about, when he was, had a cold and he was Spider-Man. Uh, what, what had happened? What had happened in the interim was that Marvel, after the the web twenty was published, Marvel had received uh, bomb threats and had to, and I guess everybody in the building had to evacuate. And Jim Owsley said, "You know, this, you know, we're, this is it isn't worth it for a story. Uh, we're 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 going to change it." And he said, "David, I want you to change it." And David said, "Look, I I, I don't want to do it." He said, "I agree. No story is worth getting blown up over." Uh, but I, I can't. I really can't, in good conscience, go back and change what I wrote. So, basically, Larry writes this fill-in issue to give Lynn Kaminsky, who writes the next issue, some time to go in and basically go to all the work. The story apparently has been drawn uh, and dialogued, but he goes in. All the word balloons have been whited out, and he writes in new dialogue. And so, 
issue 22 then turns what was an assassination plot by the IRA into a plot by the evil corporation, Roxxon, uh, because they, they, they've come up with this great tank, which, you know, I don't know, shoots some, you know, it's an atomic power tank that, you know, kills a lot of people. The Pentagon didn't want it because it doesn't work right. It overheats. Uh, and so they said, well, crap, you know, if the Pentagon won't buy it, we'll try to sell it to somebody else. So what they're doing is they're funding these fake terrorists to hurt, so that, that Britain will think that, oh, it's the IRA, and they will purchase Roxxon's defective tanks and, you know, in order to defend themselves. And that wow. basically is, and that's the story. And that is such a cheap, I mean, well, <laughs> it is. It's, a cheap, it, it's such a cheap cop-out. Um, but, yeah. you know, it, but I, and, I, and going back to what Joyce said originally, I mean, my personal perspective, obviously, I mean, the story started out, it was basically very one-sided. The IRA was the bad guys, no ifs, ands, or buts. Um, and obviously for, you know, I mean, as you know, the Northern Ireland situation is extremely complicated, particularly even in America, because you have large, you know, a large Irish population in the United States, particularly in New York City. Um, well, you know, and even though, like anybody who's listened to me knows how I, you know, that I always follow the Sean Connery method of dealing with crime and, and stuff, you know, you know, he puts one of your guys in the hospital, you put one of his on the morgue, you know. Yeah. But... What, I don't know if Michelangelo intended it to like present a more balanced uh, thing later, but when Joy tells Peter about how the problems in Northern Ireland, she says, well, it all started because of a conflict a hundred years ago, because when Spain converted Ireland to Catholicism, uh, yeah. England, was af- England was afraid that Spain would in- use Ireland as a, as a base to invade England, so England colonized Northern Ireland with Protestants. And since Ireland, the Republic of Ireland has tried to unify the country, the continent ever since, obviously the Protestants in Northern Ireland don't want to go, and, and, and Britain supports them, and that's why we have these troubles. And Peter says, so you're saying this all has to do with the conflict that was over hundreds of years ago? And Joy says, yeah, that's the real world, Peter. Well, okay, that's the historical foundation, but that is not the reason people are killing each other or blowing things up. And... It was such a one, I, I, while nothing justifies uh, people's reaction to the story, I can see why people would be offended at that, because mm-hmm. um, that's, really? that's, you know, and I, I was about to say, I don't know what, what uh, allegory to pick without offending somebody, but, uh, you know, I could always, you know, you could always point to, you know, why are, why are those people upset about, you know, this? You know, why are the American yeah. Indians upset that, you know, we nearly exterminated them? Why are, you know... Well, you know, it was far more complicated, so I can see why people were upset. But, yeah. but anyway, so anyway, that ends that ends Web twenty, and we have two social justice issues and one really stupid issue for the month. Was it a good way to celebrate twenty five years of Marvel publishing? No. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm impressed. I'm impressed that you did that from memory while driving a car. Well, that's well, damned I, impressive, Jr. Well, I wrote it. Well, it's not totally from memory. I mean, I was typing it out earlier. I mean, uh, yeah. and uh, and I'm glancing down ever so, you know, occasionally uh, to see my notes. But uh, You're yeah, driving a car it. and looking at notes, and and talking on the cell phone. But don't tell oh the cops. Oh my God! Don't call if me it, in. If it, 
If With his daughter can... in the backseat going, Dad, podcasting is so uncool. Man, <laughs> JR, that, if I see you coming down the road, I'm getting the hell out of the way. I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, she, call, call. She, she's got a passenger. She's got a passenger airbag on her side, so anyway. Uh, <laughs> Father of the year right there, boy. Uh, that's right. That's right. JR, I missed Spider History. You did a good job there this month, sir. Thank you very much. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> All right, let's move on to Bertoni's bios. Bertoni, who are we tackling this month? We are doing uh, Bruce um, from Amazing Spider-Man Annual 1, and he also briefly appeared via note in Spectacular Spider-Man Annual 7. We're going to do a little shorter one this month since uh, such a big the what, episode. The what and... thing Amazing Spider-Man Annual 21, right? Yeah. Yeah, he's yeah he's basically um he's a billionaire playboy who's trying to lure Mary Jane away and uh, what is that noise in the background? Oh, okay, it's gone now. Um, yeah, it was Bruce. Um, he's a billionaire playboy who's trying to lure Mary Jane away with um you know fancy sports cars and vacations and villas, and eventually Mary Jane, uh, depending on what story you believe. Uh, turns him down and he gives her a ride to the wedding or gives her a car which she rides to the wedding and some people particularly uh chief creative officers at Marvel Comics think that uh maybe um he gave her a little uh engagement present the night before the wedding mm. if you recall um back in 2010 uh San Diego Comic Con when I interviewed Joe Casada and I had this story before CBR did. CBR had this story two months later. Joe Casada is basically like, yeah, I think uh, Mary Jane and Bruce got it on uh, the night before the wedding. Um, Bruce's hobbies include uh, getting rid of bombs, finding triggers, crying over dead parents, and uh, <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, which uh, none of those things are in the book, but uh, he's uh. It's long been speculated, and really, it's uh, it's kind of obvious that he's meant to be Bruce Wayne, and you never see his full face in the comic. He's always kind of in the shadows, just a billionaire named Bruce. So it, w- it was a nod to the Batman stuff, and um, he was a good sport, you know, depending on well, depending on if he slept with Mary Jane or not. He was a good sport about Mary Jane getting married because he still paid for the honeymoon, and he leaves a little note with, I believe, flowers in the next. Uh, in the next chronological story, which was Spectacular Spider-Man Annual 7. Um, since One More Day and Brand New Day, he hasn't really shown back up to try and win Mary Jane back. Maybe he's the superior Spider-Man. Ooh, guess it He's got four titles a month, though. He's busy. Well, he could do five. Five. He's that five titles. He could do it. Yeah. I mean, you know, time, time, give, to, give those Time Warner lawyers, you know, something to work on. So do you think... Uh, it was just a bad idea to put it in and elude the Mary Jane had a little. I don't think one night. that there was an illusion. I never read it that way. Supposedly, other people did, but to me, like even Joe Casada says that, like, look, he's driving her to the wedding, and I'm like, I just assumed she pulled the car over and got out on that door, because like, wouldn't people be like, hey, who's driving away in that car? Who was Mary Jane with? It's nobody. Nobody was treating Mary Jane like she was dropped off by some mysterious stranger at her own wedding. Right. And with the uh, one more day, what's the one, what's one moment in time? One moment in time. I get the all worst story in the world. <laughs> was Bruce in there? I think he was. They reprinted a lot of the pages. They right? reprinted the page, but there wasn't any like new information from Bruce. There wasn't like any extra scenes of like, "Come on, Mary Jane, I'm using my iPhone because it's the year 2010." <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, so they kept that in the past. <laughs> Love it. All right. Anything else about Bruce? 
No, this was a short month because I had to spend a lot of time getting Spider Jeopardy yeah. questions ready. And to be quite honest, you know, we're this is a jam-packed episode, so I figured I'd make it a short but sweet one. No, I like it. What, any decisions what you're going to uh, do next month? Uh, I'll see what characters show up between now and then, and you know, or if anything strikes my fancy. Usually, it's spur- it's sprung by like some. Something that either happens in the news with the character, or just something I happen to discover. I think that Stone guy from uh, Stone? that Kev- Kevin was alluding to maybe a future Bertoni bio. All right, if anyone ever wants to stump me in Spider Jeopardy, I'm I'm gonna lay it all on the line now. I have barely read any Spider Man 2099. <laughs> Epic fail. I know. <laughs> I am absolutely I am absolutely ho- hopeless there. So You're, all right, nothing but 2099 for you. All right, speaking of Kevin, uh, Spider Satellite titles. What do we got this month, sir? Well, before we get into the titles, I thought um, me and Brad have had some discussion at the beginning of what to call this segment. So I wanted to share with the listeners my top ten list of titles for this segment, if you'll so indulge me. All right, hit it. Number ten, Spider-Man That's Not Amazing. (laughs) I like that. Number nine, It's Not Amazing. It's better. Oh. <laughs> Number eight. If you think Kevin's hard on amazing, you should hear what he thinks of Venom. <laughs> <laughs> Number seven. Prison ass. That's all I coming. Now time for our segment with Kevin called Prison Ass. What was asked this month, Kevin? <laughs> uh, Number six. Where Kevin keeps his A's. <laughs> Number five. How many titles do I have to buy to keep you happy, Brad? <laughs> Number four. 105. Yeah. Number and four, JR's nap time. <laughs> JR's sleeping through this because he ain't buying it, baby. <laughs> yeah, I might, I, might, I might as well add another crime here, you know. I mean, I'm already setting a bad example. My daughter just learned to drive two years ago. So here I am talking on my cell phone, looking at notes and driving. So. <laughs> Gonna take a nap on spider satellites. <laughs> yeah. yeah, honey, do as I do as I say, not as I do. So. <laughs> okay, number three, slot-free Spidey. <laughs> uh, number two, an excuse to talk about Morbius next year. Ah, uh, yeah, the ongoing. <laughs> and number one, yeah, spider satellites with Kevin do just fine. All right, cool. <laughs> All right, moving on. Um, there are Kevin still A's. I like it. <laughs> there's still only four Spider-Man satellite titles, and yet this month there were seven issues. Good lord. Goddamn. Um, because we have a one-shot, a point one, and an annual. So I've attempted to keep them in mostly chronological order, but I've kind of grouped together the things that go together. If you'll bear with me. Plow through it like a snowstorm. You know it, brother. We're gonna start <laughs> off. Uh, the first one released this month. The one-shot, Minimum Carnage Alpha, which kicks off a crossover between Scarlet Spider and Venom. So, Carnage breaks out of prison to team up with some tiny people who are going to give him free reign over their tiny dimension. But, unluckily for him, the portal is in Scarlet Spider's town of Houston, Texas. Carnage escapes through the portal with a friend of Venom's just before Venom arrives and holds a gun on Scarlet Spider. I give this issue a C. It's kind of just uninspiring. If you want some real complete thoughts... Uh, me and Chris did a tandem review of this issue on the front page, which was kind of a fun way to do a review. I enjoyed doing that with Chris, so check that out. Really? Um, we, yeah, apparently you did. Where you been? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we, 
Yes. We move into, into okay. part two with uh, Scarlet Spider number ten. Venom and Scarlet Spider have a badass fight when Flash loses control of his symbiote, and then we find out that Carnage has a plan, after which the heroes dive into the microverse after him and get split up. Venom meets tiny heroes, and Scarlet Spider meets huge space bugs. This one gets a B. Uh, the ending's not promising, but the whole thing was way better than the one-shot. Uh, basically, Chris Yost just writes Scarlet Spider well enough to make almost anything entertaining. And part three, our last part this month, was in Venom number 26. <laughs> the bad tiny people want to make a carnage army. The good tiny people want to get Venom out before he destroys the universe. The bad space bug wants to kill Kane, but Kane kills him instead. Carnage slaughters the bad tiny people, then finds the leader of the people who's hanging out with Kane. <laughs> Did we follow that? <laughs> That's a lot of little people, man. <laughs> uh, this one gets a grade of D minus. Oh. Kevin Cushing does not care about tiny people. <laughs> Stop it. You're an anti-microverse, Kevin. Oh wow. <laughs> so that. Could Yost have done that one better? Uh. Like I said, Yost writes Kane so well that it can make almost anything entertaining. But no matter what, that story would have been stupid. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the next part is going to be next month in Scarlet Spider. So we're going to see if Chris Yost can single-handedly save the middle of the story. Uh, that was a teaser if I've ever heard it. Can Yost save the little people? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we represent uh, the Carnage crew. <laughs> yeah, you say little people. Swallow it. Oh, uh, what? <laughs> oh my god, seriously. I can't hear Zach for shit. <laughs> Zach, or Zach is broadcasting from the microverse. <laughs> which is probably why he sucks. Oh, 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 oh don't hit him. Oh, sorry. Love you, buddy. Uh, what else? So, uh, Minimum Carnage is over. That's all we've got for the month. Sounds like you're happy about that. <laughs> yeah. We're going to move on to two issues of Avenging Spider-Man. Uh, right. First up, we have Avenging Spider-Man number 13, which is part two of last month's full team up. Here we got the, Hitmo the Hypno Hustler has been beefed up by his cellmate, the Tinkerer, and hypnotizes Spidey into thinking guys like Boomerang and the Painter are Green Goblin and Moreland. Then he hypnotizes Deadpool to kill Spidey. Spidey breaks the spell on Deadpool by saying, Ryan Reynolds. And the two oh, take oh. down the But oh, Spidey Lord. hypnotizes Deadpool to keep him in jail. And I swear to God, I am not making these plots up, guys. It's in the comic. It's, you liked the previous Avenging, and I hated it. You know what? I liked this one, too. I gave it a grade of B. Uh, it's really stupid. It's really, really stupid. But it's good fun that's not trying to be anything more than that. Okay. I, I can sometimes enjoy something that's just dumb, breezy entertainment if it's just fun and that's all it's trying to be. Um, so I've got to grade it on that level. Now, the Avenging Spider-Man Annual is a different story. Who wrote that one? Uh, this was written by Rob Williams, who wrote the recent Ghost, Ghost Rider series, uh, which yeah. I actually like. So it's not that I don't like him as a writer, it's, it's just this. Um, plot here, as such as it is. Two idiots dig up an alien device that makes everyone fight each other, including Spidey and the Thing. They try to sell it and end up switching it to love mode, causing Spidey's... <laughs> <Whoops>. Yeah. 
And <laughs> wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. They dig up a thing, <laughs> and it makes people fight, but they hit the reverse, and they fall in love. These two morons. Oh, my God. <laughs> but, hey, during, we were watching a special where all this stuff was dug up from war sites, and all these superhero fights have happened over Central Park. So let's... Uh, use one of those metal detector things and see what's under Central Park. And they dig up this alien device, and they hit a button, and they're like, oh, it did nothing. Meanwhile, in the background, we see everybody fighting. And then they go to, like, sell it to a guy who's literally called the Top Dog, and he's got a bunch of dogs. Um, and from There's there's a Marvel character named Top Dog from Star Comics. Is it the same? I, I don't know. Um, the The main thrust of this issue for me is that Spidey and the Thing made out. No. Yeah. No. no. They, they this were, it never happened. This thing got switched into love mode, no. and then Spidey and the Thing made out. It's Not about to- time. Maybe now all that sexual tension will be resolved. Because the fans demanded it, or what? I mean, it's not <laughs> Googling now. like something Stella would, would come. God help me. This one gets a grade of D. The story was stupid. For damn. It wasn't even buoyed by good dialogue. On the contrary, the dialogue came off especially cheesy and unfunny. This is one of those comics that I was just reading and hoping it would be over soon. And even worse than that, since it was an annual, this crap was four ninety nine. Oh, wow. The only thing that saved it from an F was some really solid art. That is, I literally would have given this an F based on the writing, but the art was really good. Um, I cannot give it higher than a D. And the thing is... Um, this issue wasn't even like listed on Marvel.com's website that recently. It might be now, but like shortly before, it wasn't even listed there. So if you missed it, don't worry. You're fine. Keep skipping it. Please. Oh, Don, you just sent me an image of Thing and Spider-Man oh, come here, making give out. Give us a kiss, you big goofball. It's slobbering time, Spider-Man. Oh, it's slobbering time. Oh, no. <laughs> That's awful. Yeah, and that little bit I haven't read that one out, that's not the end of it. Uh, well, now we have the album art for the episode. <laughs> <laughs> this is ass in prison. Right click, save as, desktop, boom. <laughs> um, but, you know, like I said, we talked about no. Avenging when I first started picking it up. You said you hadn't really been enjoying it. I no. really enjoyed a lot of the Avenging run. I it's It's been fun comics, and I think that's all it was ever meant to be, and it's really been succeeding on that. But this was honestly one of the worst issues I've ever read, and I cannot believe they charged four ninety nine. Wow. Anything else this month? Uh, yes, two issues of Ultimate Spider-Man. Okay. Oh, so, that were good. This stuff's good. Yeah, yeah. Um, Ultimate Spider-Man number 16. Miles' dad gets arrested for trying to go onto his own street. If you remember when we're in the United We Stand crossover where America's gone hell, uh, Cap yells at Miles for kind of jumping onto the Triskelion during this uh, weird time. Then Hydra attacks, Miles kicks ass, so Cap accepts him into the Ultimates just in time for Miles to be standing with them when Cap becomes president. Uh, I give this one a grade of a B. It's a very standard story, very standard story of someone that, you know, gets the chance to prove themselves at just the right moment. Like, there were literally at least ten episodes of MASH that had that same plot where the general something comes to shut them down, but then they get to, they get a shipment of wounded and, oh, they're so good at their jobs, we can't shut them down. So it's, there's nothing original about the story, but it's very well done, it's got great art, 
it's a good read. I really can't knock it at all. So I I give it a okay. get the very first Ultimate Point One issue ever. Ultimate Spider-Man number sixteen point one. Betty Brant investigates the new Spider-Man and comes to the conclusion that it is Miles's father. Jameson refuses to run the story because all it will do is destroy somebody's life. So Betty tries to sell the spider that gave Miles his powers, which she found in Uncle Aaron's apartment during her investigation, only to be killed in her own apartment by Venom. <laughs> this one gets an A. This is a great read what? with great set up and a great tease for the return of a great villain. So basically, it was great. Wait, Who dies in the apartment? Wait, I missed it. Betty Brant dies? Betty Brant. Nobody told me this. Betty <laughs> Brant is dead, Josh. Oh, no. It's the ultimate version. But people are like, hey, man, you got to check this issue out. And I'm like, yeah, I'll check it out later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, old Betty Brant gets killed. By... Oh, no. Is it like very, very graphic and like a long scene? No, no, it's a very quick, like, basically he jabs, he's in the roof and jabs something down and she falls down dead. It's like Bill died. <laughs> I actually know her name. Uh, that's awesome. Uh, what? But what is <laughs> like Betty What's Betty Brant uh, like in the ultimate universe? I don't even know. She's a horrible she's person, man. Like, seriously. She's even <laughs> everybody in the universe knows this dude. Like everybody in the ultimate universe, pretty much, she would go to him and she'd be like, "Oh, this bitch." Uh, the, the the entire ultimate universe felt about Betty the way Bertoni does. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's absolutely true. He ate Betty in the Ultimate Universe too. But there, there was a neat little uh, Brian Bendis Ultimate Easter egg in here. Sometimes he kind of throws in uh, random names for Ultimate characters that, if you know, it's just kind of fun. Um, the cop that Betty was talking to was named John Maddox, who in the Marvel Universe is the name of the multiple man dupe who uh, took on his own life and became a priest. And he's actually appeared in X Factor several times. Oh, that's cool. It cannot be the same guy because the cop was African American and Ultimate Madrix is a dead white guy. Uh, <laughs> but it was just a cool little name check there. That's neat. So that is all of your spider spider satellites for the month. Four titles, seven issues. Wow. Good month or bad month? What do you think? Um, you know, this was about even. Uh, the yep. minimum carnage event definitely was dragging things down. And the Avenging Spider-Man annual kind of gave me a little uh, throw up in my mouth near the end of the month. Um, <laughs> but Ultimate is always solid, and Avenging was a good time. Scarlet Spider was well written, so I'm going to say there was basically equal good and bad this month. Cool. All right, I've got a couple iTunes reviews I want to read before we tackle our message board questions. Uh, we've got one from his handle is seven one zero nine nine. So that's unique. Uh, but he gives us five out of five stars. If you want awesome, look no further is the subject title of this. Uh, the podcast is great. It has a panel format with different people with different views. That way I always get the full spectrum of opinions. And even if I don't agree with someone something occasionally, it's always entertaining. The segments are great with JR's This Month in History, always cracking me up at the ridiculous things that have happened in Spidey's stories. Sons of the Tiger, I'm looking at you. So he loved that one, JR. <laughs> and Bertoni's bio is giving an interesting look at lost characters. And this podcast covers all of the recent Spidey events, comic reviews, movie info, etc. It's funny and amusing. 
And Brad is a great host, always happy, and has a true love of Spidey. JR is the annoying old guy. <laughs> just, just, <laughs> just kidding. You're great, he says. Yeah, I, was about to tell him, I was about to tell him to get off my lawn then, but anyway. <laughs> and if you love Spider-Man and you want to keep up with the modern Spider-New and want to have a laugh, download this podcast right now. You won't regret it. So thank you very much for typing that up. I appreciate that. Uh, let's see. I'm not sure if I've read this one, but I'll read it again really quick. Card Trick Z, September 26, 2012, two webbed thumbs up, five out of five. I started with this podcast after listening to Amazing Spider-Man Classics. I thought, boy, I'm sure going to miss that witty banter from Amazing Spider-Man Classics, but I'll give this a shot. And am I glad I did? I've spent the last month catching up on all the episodes. They are really kept me going through long nights at work. The chemistry from the group is something wonderful, and they've even managed to pull in Josh and Don from... Yeah, yeah, you, were, you read this one last month. Yeah, you the review worked great. So, five out of five for that. Thank you very much, sir. And we have one last one that was posted. We're recording this on November 4th, so it was just posted today. Uh, your Friendly Neighborhood Podcast is what this one is called. And uh, it's written by Joe Burkholtz. And... Another Spider-Man Classics reference. With the demise of Amazing Spider-Man Classics, I needed something to fill the hole that was left. And this podcast has done the trick. I knew BD from Amazing Spider-Man Classics, and he runs a very professional website what? and podcast. And the Spider-Fan is grateful for the job that he does. Juvenile humor runs rampant in this podcast, but that by no means detracts from the grade whatsoever. People complain about the panelists being too negative about the current books. I say this, everybody has their own opinion, and when you're investing as much money into the books as we all are, we have the right to complain if we're not happy with the outcome, and the books haven't been really good for a while. These are people who have been fans their whole life, and it seems that Marvel has almost turned their backs on them. Everyone's opinion is valued and welcome, in my opinion. I enjoy the various topics discussed, as everyone is very knowledgeable of all things Spider-Man, and their input and opinions help create great debate and discussion. You get a variety, a various range of outlooks and opinions, because the panelists age from ancient, J.R., <laughs> to, to fresh-faced and innocent, which is Donovan. Man! <laughs> fresh-faced, innocent? Fresh, innocent, wow. Fatuous? <laughs> My favorite section is when the panelists answer message board questions. I know if they have, if I have a burning question, whether it be about facts or what their opinions are in something, I can go to the spider experts and ask it, and I'll be satisfied with the answer. I also love when creators are interviewed, and I've been listening to older episodes and recently listened to the Sal Buscema podcast for the first time. They were hilarious and very informative. The podcast is recommended for anybody who loves Spider-Man. So, Joe, that was very kind, very nice, and I appreciate that. Any thoughts on the reviews, gang? Uh, he nice. said uh, that he came from classics and that we were like, had juvenile humor over here, and to that I say, did you listen to classics? <laughs> <laughs> had juvenile humor there, too, huh? Yeah, we had nothing but juvenile humor there. I feel I need to get grim and grittier to shed my innocent image. J.R. <laughs> Otox, according to him, too. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, I don't know whether I ought to be take offense at that ancient comment or whether I just ought to suck it up and realize it's the truth. <laughs> it is so surreal that he's like, oh, yeah, I first heard of Brad Douglas on Amazing Spider-Man Classics. I'm like, that's not the way that the world's supposed to work at all. <laughs> <laughs> What's you going to do? 
All right, let's see. Uh, tackling message board questions. Abul Aziz from the Cajun Land in Westchester. Aiming a question my way. Should Mark Ruffalo stay as the main Banner Hulk actor? Yes. We've had two in about three movies. Or three in three movies. So, yes, I would like... I thought Ruffalo did a very good job. I also liked... Uh, well, evidently, I didn't like too much. Can't think of his name. The, the Incredible Hulk actor. Edward Norton. Edward Norton. Edward Norton, I thought, did a solid job, too. But Ruffalo was really good. I liked how he played it a little low-key. Uh, Kevin, top five Spider-Man characters besides Morbius and Spider-Man. I'm going with Mary Jane, Harry Osborn, Norman Osborn, J. Jonah Jameson. And I'm going to say Venom, though, really, with Venom, it's more the idea, the concept of Venom, than how he's mostly been used and written. I'd say Venom when written well, which makes it kind of rarely. <laughs> True. You get three more. Top five. No, top five. I just gave you five. Which, which you three did? did you not hear? <laughs> I heard Mary Jane and I heard Venom. Okay, you missed the entire middle. Mary Jane, Harry Osborn, Norman Osborn, J. Jonah Jameson, and Venom. And now I'm the ancient one, JR. Uh, JR, give a reason for Norman to take Fisk's place as the kingpin of crime, if that is to ever happen. Uh, well, I don't, I don't think it'll happen. Uh, I'm trying to think of a reason why Norman would do it. I understood why he did it originally when he was starting out, uh, but I'm not so sure. <laughs> I don't know. You know, Norman's a control freak. Norman likes to run things, and uh, having access, you know, that would give him access to a lot of resources for his next nefarious scheme. I mean, you know, so, yeah, you know, that could be a reason. But the next time I see Norman, I want him to be just a Spider-Man villain. I don't want him to be, you know, the kingpin of crime. I, I just want him to have, you know, to be, to have some awful plot against Peter Parker, to know who he is, and you know, and let's run with that for a few years. You know, I, I like the fact that Norman had his day in the sun. Uh, I didn't like the fact that he ended up in his tidy white. He's flying around, with, you know, looking giant and purple. Um, but you know, it's yeah. it's yeah, it's 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 time to be just a regular old Spider-Man villain again. Chris, you know anyone who left law school to be a musician? I'm watching The Godfather what? Part Three, and it inspired the question. <laughs> no, who? That, who, le- who left, was it, uh, it's been a long time since I've seen Godfather 3. Well, you don't need to, really. It's the Godfather single, 3. Single female lawyer? Uh, I don't know. All right, Bertone, do you think Gene Colan's art is hard to look at in old Daredevil comics? I do, so I'm wondering. I wouldn't say it's hard to look at, but your mileage may vary, and I guess uh, mine and yours have... Varied somewhat, because to me, like, Gene Colan is Silver Age Daredevil. Yeah, Gene Colan's a classic artist. That's pretty harsh to say that it's hard to look at. I, I think it's awesome. Look, he came back and did Daredevil in the 90s also. Yeah, I love Gene Colan's art. And and you love it because of the, the Dracula. Dracula. Right? Yeah, it was brilliant yeah. in Dracula. I've also read the Daredevil stuff, and it was fantastic. Yeah. All right, Zach, what if Ben Riley was black and had nothing to do with Spider-Man and Jessica Drew was the main clone in Ultimate Spider-Man? I don't know if this was a question, because uh, I'm not sure if he's asking me if I like that story or not, but, um, I mean, because Ben Riley has nothing to do with, with, with Ultimate Spider-Man, um, and Jessica Drew was pretty much the main clone that survived the Ultimate Spider-Man, Ultimate Clone Saga story. So I don't know if he's asking 
the question if I read the story because I have, and I actually um, did a podcast with uh, with John Wilson of ASM Classics and Bertoni and Donovan, and, and uh, it actually it's called Teenage Wasteland and Ultimate Spider-Man podcast, but you can't find it on iTunes. I don't know why. So I think he's trying to cleverly word and just ask you, did do you like that? Yeah, I do. I, I like that story. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, there's a lot of really, if you don't pay attention, there's not a whole lot of, there's a lot of vague references to the, to the actual original story. There's a lot of Easter eggs. Mm-hmm. Donovan, if Dr. Doom was like Dr. Doolittle and he understood the animals, will he make a good veterinarian? <laughs> Are you reading that question right? Is that what you... <laughs> how am I making that up? I mean, well, uh, I guess, I guess Von Doom would like be like, curse you in your science, Richards. Okay, Doom Dog, go get Richards and tear him up. You know, even though he's stretchy, he probably won't tear. And the dog would just like like pee on the carpet and says, "Bad Doom Dog." And like he just like I don't know, like like chews at his cape and he fries him and says, "Okay, go Doom Kangaroo or something." I don't know. If I could talk to the Doombots, I would tell them what to do. And we'll wrap the show up right about there. But before we go, I want to give another shout out to our sponsor, MailOrderComics.com. Another spider example of their great prices is on Scarlet Spider number 14. In this issue, Kane asks the question, who is the other? Which may be an homage to that uh, other storyline from a few years back. The cover price is $2.99. Mail order has it for just a buck eighty-five. So check them out at MailOrderComics.com. Thanks for listening, gang. I'm your host and webmaster, Brad Douglas, for the SpiderManCrawlspace.com. <laughs>